Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. (laughs) I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. found that tipped workers age into the most economically disadvantaged people in our population. They are twice as likely to experience poverty and homelessness than any other industry. Welcome to Everyone's Talking Money podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Game. There's no judgment, no dumb questions, just smart conversations about you and your money. So come on in and grab a seat. Everyone is welcome here. Did you know that over 5.5 million people in the U.S. are living on a tipped income? You know, servers, bartenders, ushers, nail salon workers, valets, and even strippers who all rely on tips to survive financially. But did you also know that tipped workers happen to be some of the most economically disadvantaged? Seriously. If you are a tipped worker, our guest, Barbara Sloan, author of the new book, Tipped, The Life-Changing Guide to Financial Freedom for Waitresses, Bartenders, Strippers, and all the other service industry professionals, she believes that hope isn't lost. 
you've just got to understand the hurdles to build wealth so you can actually overcome them. 90% of them are mom and pop employers. They don't have the resources to be able to fund things like a, you know, an HR representative. They don't have the resources to fund somebody who's in compliance to mat like to manage something like a 401k. So my friend Barbara is a lifelong service industry professional turned personal finance expert who is determined to help every single service industry professional figure out how to thrive financially while making your tips. So in this episode, we're going to explore why tipped employees are screwed when it comes to building wealth how to fix that, how your employer might be sabotaging your money goals, the history of the tipping culture, and the exact steps to follow to start building a financially free life right now. Even if you aren't a tipped worker, you're going to get a lot out of this episode, guaranteed. Let's start talking. Real quick before we jump in the conversation, I just want to talk to you about the sponsors of this podcast. You know, it's my job to bring you only the best companies and products that I believe will help you live a better life, save some time and money, and help you build and protect your cash. So to do that, I personally vet every single sponsor to make sure they are Shauna approved. These sponsors help keep this show free to you and allow us to bring on some amazing guests to help you on your money journey. So here's where you come in. I need you to do me a favor and like and support the sponsors on this show that you love so we can keep this podcast growing for years. You can find all the links in the show notes to all our sponsors, along with a special code for all of our ETM discounts and deals. Thanks so much, my friend. Into the episode we go. You know, you wrote this really interesting book that we're here to talk about, Tipped, uh, The Life-Changing Guide to Financial Freedom for Waitresses, Bartenders, Strippers, and All the Other Service Industry Professionals. And I was reading through your book, and the first chapter I love, you say this, in order to get to the good stuff, aka financial freedom, we need to first address the bad and the ugly, the fucked conditions surrounding tipped employment. So let's start there. You know, at the core, why are tipped employees so screwed when it comes to building wealth? Mm, this is such a, I mean, this is the why of why I wrote this book. When I started doing research on the economics of the people within the industry. And I myself have 20 years of experience in the industry, but when I started to do research from you know, Department of Labor to other studies, I found that tipped workers age into the most economically disadvantaged people in our population. They are twice as likely to experience poverty and homelessness than any other industry. And we're not talking about a small group of people. It's the second right. largest employment sector in the United States. There are over 5.5 million people in the U.S. who are living partially and solely on a tip-based income. And the numbers are abysmal. And I think it's, it's wow. really for a number of reasons. You know, the first part that I go into is sort of the history of tipping, which I think many people aren't aware of. Um, but I think it's a lot more nuanced than even that. And we can, we can go into the tipping, you know, the history of tipping if, if you'd like to. Yeah, I want to get there. I want to get there in just yeah. a minute. Um, but I, I also want to talk about, so we know this is like a huge sector of, of people, right? And there are lots of perks and benefits that tipped employees, they're just left out of, you know, paid time off, benefit packages, retirement uh, benefits, to just name yeah. a few. So, you know, you say like in essence, your employer could be sabotaging your money goals. And I, I mean, I would, I would so uh, agree with that. You know, what can we do about that if we're a tipped worker? Like, 
how do we work around the system that is in place, even with it being not favorable to us? Yeah, I think it's really important what you just said, which is work around the system that exists. This is not an industry that is likely to change and it's not an easy fix. You know, these employers in this industry, 90% of them are mom and pop employers. They don't have the resources to be able to fund things like a, you know, an HR representative. They don't have the resources to fund somebody who's in compliance to ma- like to manage something like a 401k. And so working around the system is exactly what I tell people that they have to start doing because you can build wealth. You just have to be strategic. For me, I sort of didn't really know how wealth was built until 2013-ish. Um, I moved to New York. I started working a couple jobs. I got a job at Coyote Ugly where I was a bartender. And I don't know if people are familiar (laughs) with that place, but, um, and then I also started working at wall street, um, in an unregulated firm, which was part trading floor and part independent sales organization, which was like loan sharking. And that was a huge education for me. Interesting. Oh yes. yeah. Oh yeah. Super interesting. Super interesting. Anything that has the word shark in it as a job title or as a job description. They did, they would not have called it that, but the usurious rates that they were offering financial products at was definitely loan sharking. Um, and after the third trader was shipped off to rehab, I was like, this place is way too toxic for me. I'm leaving financial services. I'm going back to bars and construction. And I got a job at a construction company. I was like employee number four and they tasked me with setting up these benefits. And so for the first time in my life, I was getting to see the behind the scenes of what a 401k was, what a paid time off policy was, what health insurance did for the financial lives of the employee, what human resources did for a person. And at the same time, we were working for these really high net worth clients and I was getting to have conversations with them on a daily basis about how they viewed money and the trade-offs that they were making when it seemed like they had endless resources. And so I was like, oh, it's these benefits and systems that act as a safety net so that people can build wealth. And they do so also with this mindset and the, and the frameworks. And so I was like, oh, that's the reason that so many of my peers and myself were not able to build wealth. Because when you don't have a, access to paid time off, anytime something small happens, you're getting put behind the starting line again. And as we know with life, something's always coming up. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, thinking about that, how then do you approach things like budgeting or savings or investing? Like a lot of the things that, you know, maybe employers that work at companies almost kind of take it take for advantage, right? Because they they have access to those things. Uh, you know, how do you how do you do that if you're a tipped worker? so that you can build wealth. Do you have any, you know, action steps or or things that you did that really helped you um again like navigate, you know, working in the world where you you survive by Yeah, tips? and this this took me so long to figure out. You know, I started deep diving personal finance in 2016. I fell into the rabbit hole and I listened to hundreds, thousands of hours of personal finance content, read all the financial bibles, read everything. And I was just like, oh my gosh, all of this advice, the budget based off of your income, the get the 401k match, ask for the raise, negotiate your salary. None of this was applicable to somebody who was working on tips. And so they've they've been left out of this aspect, this umbrella of personal finance as well. And I think 
that means that a lot of these people don't have financial literacy. So they don't know how to approach things like budgeting. They don't know how to approach things like investing. So for me, it was breaking down those concepts into really, really small pieces and then adapting them for people in the service industry. So let's start with budgeting. I'm lucky enough to be married to somebody who does corporate finance. She does she does financial planning and analysis for a you know Fortune 500 publicly traded company. And when her and I nerd out on these conversations and we have conversations about budgeting, I'm like, what do you what do these large corporations do for budgeting? Because the biggest but that I hear from people who work in the service industry is right, but I live on a fluctuating income. My income is so inconsistent. And so, so is every single business. No business operates off the same income every single month. And so when I ask her what these companies do, and I do research on what these companies do, and what I've done when I ran a, a business is they look for trends, they set targets, and then they look back and see how close they were on their targets or projections. And basically the same thing applies for budgeting. You start to track your income, which is not something that people talk about in the personal finance space because most people don't have to track their income. But in this industry, you have to track your income. You have to track your expenses. And you'll start to see trends. And people will say, oh, I know it fluctuates all the time. I'm like, we're not talking about $7 versus $7 million. The range is smaller. There are trends. If you're working in the club, then you know that your summers are going to be slow. And you know that sporting events are going to be slow. Whereas if you're working at a bar that has a bunch of... TVs or you have a patio, you know, your summers and your sporting events are going to be a little more busy. And so you're going to start to see those trends. And when you see trends, you can start to make a plan. And so, yeah. So then would you be looking at then a, basically like you'd be taking a year timeframe or are you looking at like the last, I don't know, two, three months to start finding some of those Yeah. I say start with the first couple of months, you know, I don't, budgeting long-term, I think is such a drain and a drag, you can start to see your trends in such a, in a a very short period of time. And so from there, I also say, you don't have to budget based off of your income. We have the other side of the coin that we can work with. You can budget based off your expenses. If your expenses are more fixed, start there. If you have those small, you know, expenses that maybe aren't fixed, build a buffer, find the range for those. Um, One of the features that people in this industry do have is like holiday time is usually a really great time to get a lot of excess income. You know, people during the holidays are usually really generous. And I think that's the perfect time of year to build up your buffers. So let's say that you know that your electric bill is going to be really expensive in the summer, or you want to build out your paid time off policy for yourself. You're like, all right, I'm going to take 10 days off next year. So you would save for those buffers or you would save for those expenses maybe during periods of the year that you would have like higher levels of income. So a lot of what I'm hearing you're saying too is is obviously we need to to take the action and to to do this work to track the trends, but I'm also hearing you say too that, that this is a bit of a it's a bit of a mindset shift a little bit, right? Because we're used to thinking, well, if our income is fluctuating, that's a bad thing. And how can we ever do X, Y, and Z? But what you're saying is, is no, you can actually put yourself kind of back in control of, of that, even if it is fluctuating, like use that to your advantage and you know store up in some of those months where there's a lot of excess and then know that you know, you're going to have some months where maybe there isn't going to be as much, but you can actually make this work for you. Yeah. And I think people in the service industry sometimes feel like they don't have control. 
right? You don't have control for the number of guests that you're going to get. You don't have control with what they're going to spend. You don't have control with what they're going to tip you, you know, but you do have some control. And one of the nice features about this industry is you can actually work more to make more. There's not a lot of industries where you can work more to make more. And so sometimes what I see for people when we talk about budgeting is, you know, they'll work a little more in the beginning of the month to make sure that they have you know, enough to cover their expenses. And then they can sort of relax and take, take the latter half of the month and maybe trade out some, some shifts. And so, yeah, there's a lot of mindset shifts that our industry needs to work on because I think our industry has bad PR. And with that, people think that this is a transient industry, that it's a moral or ambition failure industry. You know, there's Holly, the Hollywood trope of, you know, the struggling waitress or, you know, who, right, who's right, wanting yeah. to be an actress or, you know, it, there's just, we have terrible, terrible PR. And I think with that, it chips away at the confidence of people who work in that industry. And so maybe they don't feel like, oh, I'm getting single dollar bills or I'm paying my, my, my rent with singles it doesn't feel real at that point. Your career doesn't feel real. Your money doesn't feel real. And so this industry, a lot of the mindset shifts need to be your money is real. And that's a really important part of why you need to track your income. Because when you realize how much it adds up to, you realize, wow, there's a lot of potential here. Or, oh, there's nothing left after I made all of that money. And once you have that awareness, then again, you can start to take control and make shifts. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because there's this whole story that we tell, right? Particularly as Americans in our culture. And it's, it's you know, you need to work their traditional corporate job. You know, you work your way up and you, you know, you get to higher status, you make more money, you know, you buy your house and you buy this car. And you, it's just this whole story that we've um, been taught and we kind of keep retelling is that is the version of success. And so I think what's really interesting when you're talking about tipped workers in, in the tip industry, there is, um, I mean, definitely we we look down on those types of workers, like either they're not skilled enough or, um, well, they're just doing that job because they're, there isn't, or they're not qualified for another job or whatever it might be. And I think that's a, that's a terrible, like you were saying, like a terrible PR problem and a terrible story to keep replicating. Yeah. I remember growing up and hearing adults say like, don't become a stripper and don't become a garbage man. And now I look at the waste management industry and I see like, oh, they got their PR together. Like whenever you talk about those jobs, you talk about like, oh, they have great benefits. They get paid so much. They're home by three o'clock. They get a good workout by throwing all those bags in. They get to know all the neighborhood dogs. Like the PR for those industries have changed. Whereas the service industry, and I think this is because two thirds of the industry is primarily women and we don't see a lot of calls for action when it comes to changing or increasing wages for work for women, teachers, nurses, right? This is just another example of that. But yeah, it really does just have bad PR. And I think I, I had a college professor once tell me that the happiest people in the world were hairstylists. And I asked him why. And he said, well, they get to see the beginning and end of a creative process every single day. They get autonomy. They get mastery. They get socialization. They get to engage with new people every day and build relationships with the people that they work with. And, and, and they get to have these really amazing careers. And 
I think that's a cheat code for life. And that applies to a lot of the roles within the service industry. And so I think we spend, especially in the personal finance community, we spend a lot of time talking about lifestyle design. And I think we're, we're all sleeping on this industry a little too much. And to your point, this is a very skilled industry. Everything I learned about running a multi-million dollar business, I learned in the service industry. You learn sales. You learn networking. You learn back of the envelope math. You're doing constant math. You learn how to problem solve. You learn how to navigate and use your resources wisely. You know, there's, you learn time management. There's so many skills within, you learn entertaining, right? There's so many skills in this industry. And so, yeah, I just, I think it's bad PR. I want to walk a little through the history you kind of mentioned before. Um, I know that you you wrote that it was actually wealthy Americans traveling uh, to Europe who, who brought this tipping concept kind of to the U.S. because they thought it was a very aristocratic thing to do. Tell us a little bit about the, the history and how, how this tipped culture kind of came to be. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit problematic. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. Um, in that, I wouldn't expect it to be any, <laughs> any way different. It, it, it was popularized after the, the end of slavery and formerly, you know, enslaved people entered the workforce and they could no longer work for free. And so employers capitalized on this loophole called tipping. And so when most people exited slavery, they were finding positions in restaurants and the railroads. And those were both tipped positions at the time. Railroad workers eventually went on strike and they got what's known as the standard minimum wage, whereas people in the service industry are still held to a subminimum wage, which federally is $2.13, like $1.50 less Whoa. than a gallon of milk an hour an hour. It's it's laughable that that is still the hourly wage of a worker in the U.S. It's that is unbelievable. I I did not know it was that low. Yeah, and and people think that tipping is only ha- you know because it came over from Europe and Europe's there's a few countries that have kind of done away with it or they've down you know they've down they've downsized the amount of tipping that they do in some of the countries in Europe. But tipping is very global. Most company or most countries have some sort of tipping culture. You know, Russia has tipping culture um, everywhere, pretty much except Australia and China have some version of a tipping culture. And so it's not just here in the U.S. It's very it's very global. But yeah, how it came here was really, really problematic. And it still has some problematic trends. We see a lot of racism still in tipping. We see people who are tipped higher based on their level of like attractiveness. We see higher tips with women who wear pigtails versus when they don't wear pigtails, right? So there's some horrifying stats out there about the industry. But in this, oh I like to compare. Yeah, that I know. <laughs> I like to compare tipping to capitalism in that it's super problematic. It's not going anywhere. And the people who work in this industry do not deserve to feel shame by how they make their living. And, you know, I'm wondering, the weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. 
I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat, and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash etm to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash etm. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. They release updates every two weeks, and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied, or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and, in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft 
doxing and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. And <laughs> I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash E-T-M. Go to joindeleteme.com slash E-T-M and use code E-T-M for 20% off. Because of, of the history of tipping, and I know that, um, you know, there are a lot of people of color and immigrants who um, are, are tipped workers. And so... Um, I would imagine that that probably has something to do with, you know, the PR problem around this tipped industry. Tell me a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah. So two thirds of the industry are women, but 25% are minority, are, are of a minority status. 25% are also parents. And so it's this really vulnerable group of people who are working, working these, these roles, which is why I'm, you know, fiercely protective over trying to increase financial literacy for them. Because one of the other industries that I've worked in for 20 years is construction. I am a construction company today. And there's an organization called OSHA. OSHA was developed when there was construction happening and there were a lot of workplace injuries and deaths. And so what OSHA did is they came in and they educated the workforce. And with that, they changed the industry from within. And that's really what I want to do is I want to empower these workers, let them know that, you know, financial freedom is attainable for them and that they have some hurdles to overcome. And and that's okay. Like we can do hard things, right? And you can overcome those hurdles and still have financial success, still build wealth within this industry. So I want to ask a little bit of a of a personal question. So my sister-in-law, she's a tipped employee. She works at a very nice resort in, in Southern California, but it's a resort that really relies on tourism and conventions. If if that isn't there, you know, she's not making as much money. And it's it's really been a struggle, especially the last uh, couple of years when, you know, people were not coming to the hotel and staying there. And you know, we we saw her um be be very stressed, you know, because you're just you know, when you rely on um, that industry and you rely on those tips, you know, it, it adds, I think, another level of money anxiety, money fears, money, money stresses. Um, you know, you talked about the, the great population of people that are tipped workers. So, you know, how could someone like like my sister-in-law, you know, uh, who is who is this tipped worker and, um, you know, kind of operates in in this society, how can she actually um, you know, have a living wage and, 
you know, I, I guess keep coming back to this question, like be able to build wealth with, um, you know, you being a service industry worker. Yeah. So you said she's in California. She's yeah. in California. Luckily for her, California has a great um, minimum wage and they have done away with the subminimum wage. So there's only, I believe, 13 states that have done away with the subminimum wage. And Cal- I believe California is one of them. And so they are actually operating on a, a proper minimum wage, which it's still not easy to live on a minimum wage, whether it's a Especially exactly. in California. <laughs> Whether you're working for $2 an hour or $15 an hour, it's 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 hard. Um, but it's putting those systems in place in the same way that nine to fivers do. So the two biggest ways that people build wealth in the United States, the first way is through their 401k, their workplace 401k. And the second way is through their primary residence. And those two things feel like bigger hurdles for people in the industry like miles exactly. away. Yes. So we'll address, let's, let's first talk about the, how, how much harder it is for them to get housing, right? When you're in an industry that typically doesn't track your income, then you are not adequately claiming the proper amount of income. And when you don't claim the proper amount of income, then you are not going to be eligible for traditional financing, which means you're going to rely maybe on more predatory lending. You're not going to get favorable rates. And so you're not going to be as likely to enter, enter the, you know, the workforce. and and so those people are not often purchasing homes and getting into that. Plus, you know, when they have that variable income and they haven't learned how to budget and how to manage their money in a way, they may not feel like they have, if, if they feel like they're always struggling, they may not feel ready for home ownership. And so some of that is putting systems in place. Some of that is claiming your income. Some of that is, you know, d- doing some of the abundance work that you need to do to overcome some of your scarcity and self-limiting beliefs. And so all of that goes into home ownership. And then you look at 401ks. Again, going back to 90% of those employers being small mom and pop shops, they're not offering workplace retirement plans. And what most people don't know is that you can still have a retirement plan, even if your employer doesn't provide one. And so for people who are getting um, you know, a minimum wage on a W-2, they still have access to an IRA, which this is a very important thing for people who are working in the income. You have to claim enough earned income in order to invest that earned income into a retirement account. So for example, if you're going to invest $6,000 into a Roth IRA, you have to make sure you're claiming at least $6,000 in earned income. Otherwise, you're not eligible for that. And then once you've built up an IRA, you're eligible for a brokerage account. A brokerage account, the only reason it's not considered a retirement account is because there's no no pre-tax benefits, no retirement benefits, um, but it's still a way for you to save up for your retirement. You can retire with just a brokerage account. The math is still the math. Like if you're using a 4% rule or, you know, however you're calculating it, the math is still the math. The other way that I try to give people in the industry hope is that if you're making forty dollars or $50,000 a year... You don't need a retirement fund that is what somebody else who's making six figures is going to retire on. The math is the same no matter how much your income is. It will be just as challenging monetarily for you to retire as it is for someone else. The biggest difference in that is automation. So in nine to five world, all of these people have access to HR. And in my book, I call her HR Sharon. She's my HR hero. But all HR Sharon does is has you check a box. And when you check that box, 
in 20 years down the road, you have $800,000, whereas our worker, Jason, who's in the service industry may have eight because he didn't have automation on his side. And so there was that tension every single time he got money. He was like, oh, you know, oh, I need, should I save it? Should I invest it? Should I spend it? Right. And so a lot of people in this industry, they ask themselves the wrong questions. They'll say, would I rather go out or would I rather not go out? They'd rather go out. When you leave a service industry shift, you're energized. You have a lot more energy that you need to burn off than, let's say, somebody who's working in a nine to five. And so you go out, you have a cocktail, you spend 10, 20, 50% of what you just made on a shift without even thinking about it. Whereas we need to reframe this conversation and say, would you rather only maybe go out once a week and max out your IRA and go to Mexico, or would you rather go out three times a week? And so some of this is just developing the awareness. And, and making new trade-offs. So I, li- I like this game, playing this game of what would you uh-huh. rather? <laughs> this, is a, this is a good game because I think, you know, when you, can, um, when you can ask yourself questions like that, specifically relating to money, which is a, you know, a tense, tricky subject, all of these things I'm, I'm a big proponent of, they just put you back in control. Like you have a choice in the decision that you make. And there isn't necessarily a right or wrong choice. You kind of get to decide yourself whether that's right or wrong for yourself, but you get to actually make the choice. So I love this advice that even if you're a tipped worker, you can still make these things happen for yourself. They don't have to be hurdles. You just, you just have to you know, put in those boundaries for yourself and know that you're doing them for a specific reason. Yeah. There's, it's also that the industry doesn't have good modeling within the industry, right? So you are somebody who is at an establishment where you're likely watching somebody have drinks all day, have good food all day, have fun all day. And you kind of tell yourself that that should be your lifestyle as well, even though you're seeing people who are maybe only going out once a month, but you're seeing it so constant alcohol, food, fun, you know, sexy, fun adventures, all of that is in your face every single day and you end up becoming the ultimate consumer. And so that awareness is is very important for people in the industry, like you said, in order to start establishing boundaries. That's a good point. I mean, I would imagine that if I saw people having fun all day long, <laughs> I would probably be like, wait a minute, I deserve a little bit of this fun. I mean, I would imagine that that's that's a pretty tough thing to kind of shift. You just um, had a you just had I a great wanna, episode yeah, about um, like people going out to eat constantly, and you had somebody talking about the restaurant, uh, you know, blowing their restaurant budget. And it's so true for yes. people in the industry. The last thing you want to do when you've been serving someone all day is go home and serve yourself. And so when we think about the three biggest things in our budget, you know, it's our rent, it's our transportation, it's our food, and for people in the service industry. That becomes a very big line item because after we're all exhausted. Your case in point in that episode was just that the reason that this is such a big number in so many people's budget is because we're so exhausted. And these workers are equally as exhausted, but they don't want to go home and cook after they've just served a dozen people, you know? So it's even harder for them. Yes, we we are all <laughs> in this exhausted culture. That is definitely for sure. Uh, I want to just jog back a little bit to your story. Uh, You share very openly in your book about your story that you were uh, a homeless teen. You said you danced for dollars and you 
you said you definitely did not graduate for college, but somehow found your way to Wall Street, which you already kind of mentioned, but then you got really burned out on this. And I love that you you ask yourself what financial freedom is to yourself. And you know, why are you striving for it? Why are we all kind of striving for this? Tell us a little bit about, you know, the lessons that you've learned about financial freedom kind of over, you know, this, this very interesting life that you've Yeah. I, I mean, I, my journey starts with me making a ton of financial mistakes, you know, like I got super, <laughs> Welcome to the club. right. I was super in debt. I was 19 or 20 and I had $175,000 in debt, um, making about 18 to $20,000 a year. And I ended up running from creditors for a number of years. And that was part of the reason that I needed to work in the industry was because I relied on that cash. And I was so angry at a system that allowed me to screw myself over at such a young age without any knowledge, without any, you know, any system in place to protect me. And so after digging myself out of a lot of those mistakes, I just, I wanted to prevent other people from making those mistakes, you know, like it was, it was hard. And one of the things that I so appreciate about my wife is she came out of school in 2008 and she's a corporate finance exec, like, but she came out in 2008 and she worked for a defense contractor. And I remember her telling me that she watched grown men weep and cry when they realized that they had to work for another decade or they lost half their net worth. And so we both just had a ton of scarcity that we have had to work through um, to get to, to where we are. And I think that, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, but it definitely, definitely can make the ride a lot smoother and can make it a lot more enjoyable, the things that you can get for yourself. And so, you know, money is a tool. But I, I definitely wanted something that could help make my life more joyous and more full of adventure and a lot easier because I had a really tough upbringing and it was a gift that I wanted to give myself. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Talking about money is hard. You know this already. All over the world, people are taught to never talk about money, politics, sex, or religion in polite company. On 50 Fires, a podcast about money and meeting from executive producers Chip and Joanna Gaines, host and financial conversationalist Carl Richards will remove money from that list by having frank, funny, and often difficult conversations about money, the kind we're all told not to have, with guests from all walks of life. In each episode, Carl will invite a new guest to answer the question, what does money mean to you? Their answers will reveal much more than their attitudes about money, spanning revelations about identity, community, faith, family, and the true meaning of wealth. Tune in to hear deep conversations about money and the meaning it holds in our lives. You can find 50 Fires on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I think it's important for everybody to ask that of of themselves too. You know, we throw out these words like wealth and financial freedom, but there isn't a lot of um, substance behind it. And I think 
we need to stop and figure out what that actually means for each of us. And your definition of those things are going to be completely different from mine and completely different from everyone listening. And I think that's a that's a good thing. And we we tend to not celebrate that. We tend to only celebrate like one version of what those things are. And I think that that's what keeps so many of us just kind of trapped, um, you know, and, and seeing money as this kind of ugly elephant in the room because we don't, we can't find ourselves, you know, a way into that, that one version. And so, you know, I would encourage everyone listening, just like you, you have in your book, you know, to really think about what those things mean to you and make sure that the decisions that you're making with your money, at least, you know, kind of go to, to support. When I first heard of financial freedom, I kind of just thought it meant you were rich. (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant. Right. Yeah. And course. then when I dug into it, I realized that it was really about control. It was about getting control over your finances and getting control of your choices. And for people in this industry, especially since they feel like so much is outside of their control, something like an emergency fund will change your entire life. When you're in the service industry, there's a natural power imbalance. You are serving somebody else. And so when you have an emergency fund, it is a form of protection in your career where you can say, actually, what they're asking of me is not appropriate. What they're asking of me is not safe. What they're asking of me is not in line with the values of my company. And so if you have an emergency fund, you can say, no, I'm sorry, I cannot do that for you. I can't accommodate this request. You can actually leave. Or you feel empowered to go get your manager and assist with that. If you are reliant on a single tip, in order to pay your bills or to, to, to make yourself safe, then you're not going to be able to protect yourself appropriately. And financial freedom is about being able to protect yourself and about being able to protect your future. Well, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about dancing coyote ugly. We've talked about loan sharks. And of course, your great book tipped, which I want everyone to pick up a copy of. Um, I think, you know, because this is one of these first books that I've ever read that really speaks to tipped workers and to, you know, service industry workers in a way that is approachable and easy to understand. You know, there's, there's so much uh, more to share than we've even had time to talk about. But you know, what would you say to anyone listening that is a, a tipped worker to remember, you know, about building wealth and, and financial freedom, uh, about kind of rising above this economically, you know, disadvantaged situation that a lot of tipped workers are in? What kind of hope do you want to do you want to leave us with? Remember that you are a highly skilled and valuable person. If you can figure out how to ring in a 10 top and split checks or know the difference between four types of red wine and four types of white wine and four types of whiskey, then you are capable of investing. You're capable of managing your money. You are capable of getting to retirement and building building wealth. And I think people just need to be reminded that this industry uses a lot of jargon to keep to gatekeep and to keep people out. But you are capable. How and where you work should not limit your ability to build your version of wealth and true financial freedom. It sucks that this is the case with tipped workers, but here we are. What I love about Barbara is that she's been where you are. She's had to figure it all out. And now she just spends her time tirelessly helping you shortcut the learning gap so you can truly thrive as a tipped worker. 
If you want to connect with Barbara, you can find the Tipped book on Amazon, and you can also connect with her on all her socials at Tipped Finance, and you can also head right on over to her website at tippedfinance.com, where she offers money coaching and a lot of other amazing extras. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, if you know someone who's a tipped worker, share it with them and help them start their path to financial freedom. As always, you can head to the show notes for all the links to our episode guest, as well as the sponsors who make this show possible. I'll see you back here in a few days for a brand new episode. <music>